Father, no one came today to hear a man speak. We all came to hear you speak. You are the one who can eliminate barriers between your word and our hearts. Would you do that this day? Would you declutter our minds? Would you position our souls to do work? We do not study the Bible to make the head fat, but the heart right. We realize that this passage does not merely accurately record history of an event that happened over 2,000 years ago. It also accurately reads our hearts and trains our souls to love your son. Beat into our understanding that there is nothing more we need at this moment than your words from this text. Father, the text is clear. Our application of the text may not be. Help me not to say something you aren't saying. Help me to say everything you are saying. To bring out proper applications. I am not the master of this text. This text is the master of me. Help me to be a servant to the text. A servant to the text as I serve it to the flock. Holy Spirit, we are completely dependent on you to make the book live to us. Completely dependent on you to make Jesus sweet to us. May this be another Sunday in which we leave with confidence knowing that your word alone is enough to sustain your people. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We have arrived at the text on eating meat offered to idols. Otherwise known as, can I drink alcohol? <laughs> I intend to bring this text to your front porch in ways you like and in ways you don't like. I am going to have a longer runway before I get into the text than normal. We will fly, but I must build the runway to give our little plane enough space to get off the ground. Before we even touch the text, I want to walk out why this text is weird for us. Why we read it and go, what? There is no modern equivalent. This is a remote discussion so far removed from us. I want to follow up why this text is weird for us with why this text is not so weird for us. First, why this text is weird for us. In Corinth, there is a controversy regarding eating meat. The controversy is not the type of meat. People were not horrified by the animal from which the meat came. Down in deep Texas, you get rattlesnake meat. In Peru, they eat guinea pigs. In the Philippines, they eat dogs. In the local Chinese place in Oak Grove, they serve cat <laughs> that they call chicken. You may be outraged or horrified by the type of meat other people regularly eat. But that's not what's happening here. They were scandalized by what happened to the meat before they ate it. In antiquity, a large percentage of meat available for consumption would have been previously offered to an idol. Orient yourself to this culture. This was a day before a grocery store was found on every corner. 
They couldn't run to Kroger or Walmart. There was no meat section at Publix. There were two places to buy meat. The local market and the pagan temples. The local market was like your farmer's market. They sold grain, fruit, vegetables, but also meat. Meat from the market was very expensive. The ancients were not the meat eaters we are today. They ate a lot of bread, vegetables, and barley meal. Meat wasn't a huge staple in their diet as it is in ours. Meat was a delicacy. Only the rich could afford to eat meat regularly. If you wanted to buy the best prime rib in Corinth, you shopped at the markets and you paid a hefty price. So you had meat from the market, then you had meat from the temples, the pagan temples. Shopping for meat at the pagan temples was like shopping at Sam's Club or Costco. It was cheaper and you could, you could get big blocks of meat, buy in bulk. Now, no matter where you received your meat, meat was almost exclusively known as an ingredient in pagan religious celebrations. These pagan temples would butcher animals and burn some of the meat to their false god, apportion some of it to the priests and worshipers, and then sell the rest. Either sell, either sell it right there at the temple or sell it to the local food markets. In other words, God gets some, the gods, God gets some, the priest gets some, and the grocery store gets the rest. The meat was butchered to pagan deities before it made it to the grocery aisle. These slaughterhouses were right next to the temple. In fact, the butcher shop for the town would have been the pagan temple. These pagans, not the Christians, but the pagans believed that demonic spirits attached themselves to the meat. They could possess you if you ate the meat they were hanging on to. So they sacrificed and burned the meat for two purposes. To gain favor with a false god and then to rid the meat of demons. This became a very complicated and thorny issue in the church. Eating food once sacrificed to idols was a big deal. A controversial topic. The church held panels on it. Wrote articles about it. Held town halls to debate it. The issue was bound to split the church. Remember how controversial the mask issue became during COVID? It was never an issue in our church, but it wasn't a lot of churches. Well, the COVID mask debates were peanuts compared to this one. In this debate, there were no unknowns. The facts were clear. The meat was sacrificed to idols, and now there are some Christians over there eating it. And you might be thinking, Kyle, this has nothing to do with us. This is not a problem we are facing. I would remind you that God chose to inspire this little church debate and preserve it for our benefit. You may not think you need it, but God thinks you need it. And I'm going to go with him on this and say that this is profitable for our reproof, our correction, and our training in righteousness. I want you to avoid two great sins, geographical snobbery and historical elitism. First, geographical snobbery. For many around the world, this issue of meat offered to idols 
is still a very big issue. We may not have a problem with this in our Western culture, but it certainly has parallels on the mission field. It's a very real thing for some missionaries around the world. It still exists in some cultures where people are saved out of idolatrous religions. Food raises enormous questions in some places, particularly if a local religion imposes dietary restrictions. One man said after teaching this passage in Pakistan, the first question he was asked was, can a Christian eat an eel? Maybe in India, can a Christian eat a cow? If you come from a Hindu context, this is big. For people who come from families that have statues in their religion, this text is a live issue. Converted Muslims and Hindus are usually more careful around the concept of food being attached to gods than we Christians in the West. First, geographical snobbery. Second, historical elitism. The solutions of the past are a treasury of wisdom for you. Don't be a chronological snob. Their solutions are your solutions. I told you I wanted to move from this passage is a bit weird to us to this passage is not so weird for us. At first, this seems like it doesn't apply to us, but it does. It's actually extremely relevant for us. The wider issue is Christian liberty. Your personal decision about questionable areas. What do you do in the gray areas? When there is an absence of God's revelation on the topic, how do you respond? It's clear in the black and white, but what about the murky middle? This text encourages you to be wise about your Christian liberty. Now, I've set the table on it. Meat very likely offered to idols. Are you to sweep it off the table or put it in your mouth? Here's what I've got for you today. The first century situation, the 21st century application. The first century situation, that's the biblical text. The 21st century application, that's the modern takeaways. The first century situation, I'll walk through the text verse by verse. The 21st century application, I'll walk you home with specific ways to live out this text. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Paul repeats this Corinthian formula, now concerning, to respond to another one of the church's questions. They wrote to him asking if they could eat meat that was previously offered to idols. Evidently, this question kept coming up in the church. New Testament scholar David Garland says, the Corinthians were engaged in a long-term discussion, long discussion with Paul on this matter. Verse 1 continues, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Would you underline the word knowledge? And then underline the word love. You might wonder, why is Paul talking about knowledge when we are dealing with idol food? 
Well, notice the quotation marks around all of us possess knowledge. This is believed to be another one of the Corinthians' slogans. Now, what is this knowledge concerning? According to verse 4, it seems to be that the knowledge concerns idols not being real. There were people in the church who were, who were boasting about their understanding of food and idols. They are convinced that their theology of idols resolves any question of eating this food. Why are we still talking about this? If you had half a brain, if you could even spell theology, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. I bet you can't even go to the movies, can you? Or read Harry Potter? Ooh, spooky. They have the right knowledge about idols, but it is puffing them up. They are flaunting their knowledge. Some Christians grow, and some Christians swell. These have inflated heads. The knowers are obsessed with knowing things. But Paul reveals to them, you are mature in knowledge, but not mature in love. Now, I'll give you your strong in self-love, but your weak in brotherly love. In the name of knowledge, they were advocating for others to eat the meat. They had big heads, but small hearts. Paul says, if it puffs up, it cannot build up. Apparently, this group with the knowledge exclusively reserves that phrase for themselves. We are the only ones who have the knowledge, and we are the only ones who see this situation clearly. Now, later we're going to get down to verse 7, and we're going to walk through verse 7 word by word, but I want to read it now to give you a clear picture of what's going on. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Eating this meat does nothing to you, but look at what it does to them. Paul tells the one group of Christians in the church, knowledge is not the primary basis of how you behave in this scenario. You keep rationalizing your eating by appealing to knowledge, but knowledge only does good in the company of love. It's only useful as long as it's tempered by love. Your Christian rights and liberties should be bent toward love. And I see it bent toward pride. They were pressing their freedoms while not considering the weaker brother. You've been knowing and exercising your rights apart from love. Food is some people's love language. And you are hurting them by your behavior with meat. Love limits your Christian liberty. Love must always regulate your liberty at the table. Two groups in the same church. The knowers and the clueless. The know-it-alls and the know-nothings. Verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul's revealing the knower's tendency toward pride. Uh, here's an analogy. 
If knowledge is meat, then knowledge with no love is uncooked meat. It will make the body sick. Augustine of Hippo writes that knowledge only does good in the company of love. Otherwise, it merely puffs man into pride. Your actions should be governed by love and knowledge, not just knowledge. Our knowledge is a matter of God's grace. Can't you see that, knowers? Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Your knowing should make you love these other Christians, not look down on these other Christians. You can sin with your brain. You can sin with your knowing. The logic goes like this. You sin with your knowing. Now let me introduce you to someone who doesn't sin with their knowing. God. You are known by God. Paul is deflating the pride of the Corinthians by revealing to them a holy knowledge. It's not our knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of us that speaks into this situation. There are two groups of Christians in the church at Corinth. The knowers and the clueless. The know-it-alls and the know-nothings. The permissive party and the restrictive party. The permissive party says, you can eat the meat offered to idols because idols, here's a newsflash, they don't really exist. It's, it's superstitious. Just because an athlete kisses a rabbit's foot before the game doesn't mean I can't watch the game. Luck doesn't exist. So goes the line of thinking from the permissive party. There is no demon meat or non-demon meat. There's just meat. Eat up. The restrictive party, on the other hand, says idolatry is a devilish act that you should stay far away from. This is nothing to play around with. Put the chicken leg down. All the quotations in this chapter are from the first group. The knowers, the know-it-alls, the permissive party. And we're about to see two more quotes from this party. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. The knowers are saying, have you somehow forgotten idols aren't real? We aren't polytheists believing in many gods. We are monotheists believing in one God. The Greeks and Romans were polytheistic, worshiping many gods, Monotheism is essential to Christianity. There can only be one God. If idols don't exist, how can idol food mean anything at all? They knew an idol was nothing more than a mere representation of a God that doesn't exist. Only a reflection of the imagination of the one who designed it. As Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound with their throat. A non-existent God can't contaminate food. 
the pro-idol food people, they end up looking like monotheists here. The anti-idol food people end up looking like polytheists. There's no such thing as idol food, just food. And the weak need to get with it and enter the world of spiritual freedom. That is the tone of the knowers. Paul said, we know that. Paul seems to concur with the permissive party's quotation. Not their tone, but he agrees with their assessment. He agrees with them theologically, but wants to curb their enthusiasm. Verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Notice the word so-called. It points to their unreality. These idols, these gods in the temple are lifeless, beingless, substanceless frauds. Calling something God or Lord doesn't make it either one of those things. Verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. <laughs> Paul bursts forth in praise. He's raising his hands and glorifying the God of heaven. Everything comes from the Father. And all believers exist for the Father. He is our origin and our goal. Our God alone, our God alone exists as the focus of all worship. We don't strut in front of him. We bow before him. We don't brag about our knowledge of him. We revel in his knowledge of us. Notice the Trinitarian theology in the verse. Paul does not say there are three gods. He says there is one God. One God, but three persons. One undivided divine essence dwelling forever in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Paul affirms the Old Testament truth that there is one creator God. The oneness of God is regularly affirmed by Paul. This verse is a Pauline adaptation of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We also have in this verse one of the highest Christological statements in the Bible emphasizing the deity of Christ. Paul assigns the same divine attributes to Jesus that he does to the Father. Jesus is God. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Two groups. The knowers and the clueless, the know-it-alls and the know-nothings, the permissive party and the restrictive party. Here's a new category. The strong and the weak. For the weak Christian coming out of paganism, this meat was to placate the wrath of a false god. That's what they've been doing since they were a kid. It was their Thanksgiving meal. They only had pagan associations with meat. Their conscience, this is used 32 times in the New Testament, 
It speaks of the inner court. Not, not the Holy Spirit, but the inner court of man. Their conscience was shaped under certain conditions. Out of habit and association, this is a pagan practice to them. They had turned their backs on such former cultic practices. And you can imagine their surprise when they enter the church and it seems like they're doing it. Eating idle food reintroduces them to the world of idolatry. Certain actions trigger old memories and associations. And this is what is happening to the weak while the strong eat their ribeyes. Paul says, the weak are programmed to think a certain way about this food. And it appears Paul has no interest in deprogramming them about it. The knowers don't know the weak. They are causing confusion for the weak Christian. Triggering something spiritually unhealthy in them. And Paul is a bit testy with the strong for not being more concerned with those who recently came out of paganism. Strong Christians must act with consideration for the weak lest they be sucked back into the vortex of idolatry. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Food does not bring us near to God. All you vegetarians and vegans, underline that. Food does not bring us closer to God. This is for all you little legalists who believe in justification by carrots. Paul speaks of the neutrality of food. No food item gives you a leg up spiritually. Food is value neutral. Food is neither here nor there. So don't make a fuss about it. You are not worse off if you don't eat meat or better off if you do eat meat. Food has no impact on your standing with God. It does not give you advantages or disadvantages. Now, I've acted like this verse was written to the weak. Hey, weak, get off my back and let me enjoy my steak. But actually, it was written to the strong. Paul speaks to those who are eating the meat and proclaims this will not commend you to God. Evidently, they thought exercising this liberty revealed some type of superiority. Paul said it does not. Let me repeat that. Evidently, they thought exercising this liberty revealed some type of superiority. And Paul said it does not. Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Amen. Be careful, you know-it-alls. Your behavior with this liberty has the possibility of being a stumbling block. Now, this isn't something minor, like you throw a banana peel and cause them to slip. This is something that causes them to stop dead in their tracks and not proceed forward in the path of following Christ. You are like a storm that puts a tree across a back road where he or she cannot continue down the road. You must recognize the seduction of idolatry 
and their susceptibility to it. They are still vulnerable to these old associations. It is never right. It is never right to cause another brother or sister to stumble. <laughs> Paul, look at you congratulating yourself on how mature you are as you chop your brother down. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you have knowledge, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Hey, it's Taco Tuesday at Aphrodite's temple. Let's go grab a to-go order. No. That's like inviting a former gambling addict to eat with you at the casino restaurant. You are exhibiting a selfish disregard for the weak. Your ill-timed behavior hinders the work of Christ in their life. You should endeavor to strengthen the weak in the faith, not flaunt your freedom in front of them. This is Paul's impassioned plea to make wiser decisions. You don't want to drag them back into the dark world of demons. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Christ gave his life for that man. Could you not give up dinner? This is supposed to make the strong recoil in horror. You can't even lift a finger to help someone Christ died for. You're just hell-bent on destroying the weaker brother's faith. These weak Christians are so precious to God that he laid down his life for them. Can you not lay down the T-bone? Destroy. Destroy in the verse is a strong metaphor for falling into sin. Paul's emotive tone pierces the soul. The consequences of you not considering the weak are quite serious. A former idolater could fall back into the grips of idolatry. Verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Notice the language used to describe the strong's behavior to the weak. Defile, wound, offend, all indicating a blatant, callous disregard for their walks with Christ. The stronger saint must defer to the weaker saint. You're not just slapping that brother in the face. You are slapping Christ in the face. You cannot sin against Christ's body without sinning against Christ. To wound them is to wound Christ. Paul labels this action in the gray area as sin, not just an offense to others. You are seriously damaging their faith. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, 
lest I make my brother stumble. <laughs> like a good teacher, Paul applies the situation to himself. I will become a vegetarian in public if necessary. Which, let's be honest, sounds like a fate worse than death. <laughs> but Paul will do it. I just love this guy so much, I'd go vegan. You are more important to me than a steak. The first century situation, the 21st century application. The first century situation, that's the biblical text. The 21st century application, that's the modern takeaways. The first century situation, I'll walk through the text verse by verse. The 21st century application, I'll walk you home with specific ways to live out this text. You ask Kyle, what was the meat? Was it mutton, beef, goat? From my research, the best I can understand, this meat offered to idols in pagan temples was Popeye's chicken. <laughs> and they served Chick-fil-A in God's temple. <laughs> Children, that is not true. Let's pull some 20, 21st century applications. I have five of them, and they're all rather long. The first takeaway, there is a right use of rights and a wrong use of rights. There is a right use of rights and a wrong use of rights. We need to think a realignment of our rights. How can we rightly exercise our rights? We have an over-individualized understanding of rights. And we need to get back into a communal understanding of rights. As a Christian, there are times you will need to forfeit. You will need to forfeit your legitimate rights for loving service to others in the body. Love trumps your freedom. Are you careful with your freedoms? I don't like unrealistic movies. If it can't happen in real life, I'm not going to watch that on a movie. Anyway, there's a very unrealistic movie that I've never seen called Jurassic Park. <laughs> and there's a quote in the movie. I can quote movies I've never seen. There's a quote in the movie that says, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Sometimes this is the case with Christian liberty. You are so preoccupied with whether you could, you never stop to think if you should. It is wrong to offend the conscience of fellow believers who are weak. You are making them spiritually stumble. It exhibits a lack of care for Christ's bride. Recognize the deep implications of your choices. Please do not use your liberty in a way that weakens. There are many things I am at liberty to do that I do not do. You know why? Because I love you and I don't want you to fall. You have freedoms. But you're also free not to exercise them. Martin Luther, in his treatise on Christian liberty, said a Christian is a perfectly free Lord 
lowercase, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Then he adds, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Your liberty of conscience is not without restrictions and qualifications. It's restricted by love and qualified by your brother. I want to give you a general principle applied to all doubtful or gray behavior. A general principle applied to all doubtful or gray behavior. It may not be forbidden by Scripture, but how will it affect others? It may not be forbidden by Scripture, but how will it affect others at FFC? This text underscores the heavy responsibility we have toward believers. Now, to drill deeper with specifics, the danger with getting specific, you say, stop right there, Kyle. I, I know you don't want to get specific because you might offend someone. Do you even know me? <laughs> that is not my concern at all. The danger with getting specific the danger with getting specific is it can weaken the application because it gets too narrow. I'll run the risk. You should never urge a fellow Christian to do something they can't freely do with a good conscience. Take a drink. It's not a sin. He used to be a drunkard. We have former alcoholics in our church. They need to hear from you. You are more important to me than this drink. It may not be a sin for you to drink, but it is a sin for him to drink. Now, it's a sin for either one of you to get drunk or buzzed. Let's get that clear. Plus, I, I am not sure a glass of whiskey is equivalent to the fermented wine Jesus drank. But that's another topic for another sermon. Permissive Christian, don't put idle meat before them. They are still real weak in this area and real susceptible. You don't need to put, in, put it in front of their face or flaunt that you do it. Associations with the old life are still too raw. We live close to Nashville. Half that city moved there because they idolized becoming a country music star. I wouldn't invite them to concerts when they were at one time addicted to that idol meat. You must act biblically. Is it a sin? Then you must act relationally. Is it healthy for them? No then I will not do it in front of them. This text is all about knowing when to eat. Is it a sin to chew tobacco and smoke? And some of you are here for your first Sunday, and this is a great one, great one for you to come in. <laughs> is it a sin to chew tobacco and smoke? There is no chapter and verse that says it is. I grew up in a smoker's home. My lungs are probably charred. My whole family smoked, like a freight train. 
The childhood memory I have of my grandfather is him sitting behind the counter of the convenience store that he owned with his oxygen tank beside him, his oxygen mask in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Ten yards to his left, gas pumps. I, I have pastor friends who pastor churches just like ours, and they love to smoke big, fat cigars. And I tell them all the time, when you die of lung cancer, I will be there for your kids. And, and they just go nuts when I say it. You don't inhale cigars. I have this freedom in Christ, Kyle. And then, you know, you're like a 90-year-old man in a 36-year-old body. One of my favorite mentors, dead mentors, Charles Spurgeon, he, he loves some old cigars. Some people have bad associations with certain uh, genres of music. I don't want to listen to something that makes my brother lean back into that old life. They are still vulnerable to these old associations. Alistair Begg quotes the Beatles and other groups from that time period in his sermons. He does it like every other sermon. I heard him acknowledge once that those same lyrics that are fine for him to quote may remind others of sex, drugs, and loose living. You have rights and you have renunciations. Now, some of these are silly examples, but I want you to think broadly of other areas in your life. This could apply to clothing, or an event you attend, or something you watch. It could trigger old memories and associations for others. There are many things you can do, but it would be better if you didn't do it. It's a love issue, not a freedom issue. Be willing to lay aside rights for the good of others. Don't love your Christian liberty more than the Christian for whom Christ died. And maybe you grew up in legalism. And now you've found liberty in Christ and it's great. And you can't help blasting it all over social media. That newfound freedom is wonderful. And I only want you to see it as wonderful. That newfound freedom is wonderful. While rejoicing in it, consider the weaker brother. Takeaway number two. Be aware that we are not all at the same place. Honor the pace of God in people's lives. Be aware that we are not all at the same place. Honor the pace of God in people's lives. Strong Christian at FFC. Do you realize that you are surrounded by weak Christians? There are weak Christians among us. What are you doing specifically so they do not fall? You are to be an example in here with how you sing, with how you listen to preaching, and you are to be an example out there with how you work and how you walk. The problem in Corinth was that the filet mignons had pagan roots. It brought up bad associations in people's minds who came out of that. Now, let me give you one example that you've probably not thought of. There are pagan elements in our culture. We can partake of, pagan, of things that have pagan roots. We have a lot of holidays that have pagan roots. 
And, and you may think it's not a big deal to have a blank party. You fill in the blank and list the holiday that has pagan roots. We dress up and we have a good time. Do you know that we have people in our church who were a part of the occult? God saved them out of witchcraft. I could blow your mind with about every baptism we have here. Ellsworth says, when knowledge and liberty cry, indulge. Love often, not always, love often cries, abstain. You may have freedom to read Harry Potter, but for some others, that may bring up raw associations with their former life of witchcraft. God allows us to make different decisions on different matters. Gray areas. In gray areas where, where scripture is not clear, you may choose to go one way and I may choose to go another way. But we both must give thought to the brothers and sisters at Faith Family Church. Hey, Cain. <laughs> hey, Cain. You are your brother's keeper. From Genesis to Revelation, you are indeed your brother and sister's keeper. Do you look down on your weaker brother? You must honor the weak as members of Christ. The exercise of your personal freedom is never simply personal. You don't exercise freedom in a bubble. Our rights and privileges in Christ are far greater than we have ever imagined. We are so free in Christ. And you are free not to act in your own self-interest, but rather in the interest of others. Be accommodating and affectionate toward the weaker among you. Humbly live according to your convictions and humbly love others with different convictions. Christian liberty does not mean that you welcome fellow Christians only when they have sorted out their views on X, Y, and Z. You welcome them before and you honor the pace of God in their lives. When one of our boys was younger, we gave him a plastic chainsaw. We have pictures of him wearing a white sleeveless undershirt covered in mud with, with chainsaw goggles on. As, as he got older, we gradually removed the restrictions. He got a knife. After a few stitches, he got a bigger knife. <laughs> then a BB gun. Then a pellet gun. Then an actual gun. Then another one. The restrictions are gradually removed as he grows older and learns for himself what is dangerous and what is not. Haddon is six years old now, and we can trust him with grenades. <laughs> okay, I, was, I was referring to a, another son. <laughs> Beloved, things that are hard for you now may not be hard for you forever. As you grow in the word and in your discipleship, you will be able to handle things you could not handle before. Or... Maybe not. Paul doesn't seem to, 
Paul doesn't seem like he wants to convert the Greek Christians to actually eat idol meat. That doesn't seem to be a priority in his mind. He, it seems he wants the stronger Christians to adapt. The third takeaway. You may want to restrain from a particular freedom for an opportunity to witness. You have freedom in Christ. You have freedom in Christ to enjoy food, smoke, drink, film, secular, mu secular music, piercing, tattoo. Unless you're my children, then you don't have freedom to enjoy any of that. I'm, I'm, I'm for tattoos, just not for my children. Someone said one time, you have more tattoos in your church than any church I've ever seen in, in my life. We've got a lot of tattoos and a lot of guns and a lot of tithers. All right, that last one's not true. <laughs> you have freedom in Christ to enjoy food, smoke, drink, film, secular music, piercing, tattoo. But don't forget, you are missionaries in a greater culture. You always have to gauge what is acceptable and unacceptable conduct for you. Consider readjusting your life for the sake of the gospel. Living in Germany, alcoholic beverages, not a big deal. In the South, in the Southern Baptist South, big deal and a stumbling block for some. Now, I say that, and I remember Tony Morita, one of my profs in my doctoral program, talking about inviting a guy over for a beer and then winning him to Christ while they both held a bottle in their hand. Harry Ironside was at one time the pastor years ago at Moody Church in Chicago. And he was on a, a Sunday school outing with various people, and one of them was a, a man named Mr. Ali who was originally from India and raised a very devout Muslim. As the sandwiches were being passed around at the Sunday school picnic, this young lady gives one to Ironside and then turns to Mr. Ali. And he asked, what kind are they? And she replies, well, there's fresh pork and there's ham. And he replied, have you any beef? No, she said. She said. What about lamb? No. What about fish? No. Well, then he says, thank you very much. I will refrain. Why, Mr. Ali, you surprise me, the young lady said. Are you so under law that you cannot eat pork? Don't you know that a Christian is at liberty to eat any kind of meat? I am at liberty to eat, he said. But I am also at liberty to let it alone. You know I was brought up in a strict Muslim family. My old father, nearly 80 years of age now, is still Muslim. Every few years, I go back to India to render an account of my tea business, of which my father is really the head, and I get to visit with the family in the home. Always, when I get home, I know how I will be greeted. The friends and family will be sitting inside, and father will come to the door when the servant announces that I am there. And my father will ask, Son... Have those infidels taught you to eat filthy hog meat yet? No, Father, I will say. Pork has never passed my lips. Then I can go in and have the opportunity to preach Christ to them. If I took one of your sandwiches the next time I go home and would have to answer my father's question honestly, as a result, I would not be able to go in and preach the gospel. 
Some of you here are not Christians, and you know it. Some of you are not Christians, and you don't know it. Non-Christians, we are willing to forego freedoms to share Christ with you, that you might repent to God and believe on His Son. Takeaway four. The fourth takeaway. You think you are the weak brother, but maybe you are the legalistic brother. You think you are the weak brother, but maybe you are the legalistic brother. (laughs) The weak don't hold the church hostage. You hear me? The weak don't hold the church hostage. When Mark Dever first went to Pastor Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., in the Constitution they had written, no members could ever partake of any alcohol at any time or they would be up for church discipline. Mark made them take it out of the Constitution, even though Mark himself was a teetotaler like I am. He knew the Bible didn't forbid consumption of alcohol, and he didn't want to forbid something God never forbid. It's funny to me that churches make all kinds of alcohol policies, but they don't make food policies. There can be no group in the church demanding their own behaviors of others. There are people who are prone to judge and criticize. They're afraid to use their freedom. My prayer through this study has been, Lord, help us not to create any legalists. I'm preaching hard against sin and emphasizing giving up rights for others, but help this not to create any legalists. There is no self-appointed group within the church who has the right to impose their conviction on all gray areas. John MacArthur says legalism stifles liberty. It stifles conscience. It stifles the word. It stifles the Holy Spirit. And I say, amen, John. Be careful about calling sin something that isn't sin. Everyone doesn't always need to tiptoe around you. In the independent fundamental Baptist circles, most of them, They are convinced women wearing pants is wrong. And they think you should give in to them on this issue. How far should you go in regard to giving up your rights for the conscience of others? How far should you go in regard to giving up your rights for the conscience of others? You don't lay down your rights for a legalist. Jesus didn't do it and you don't do it. Jesus ate with sinners and publicans. They called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. And he didn't drop the fish sandwich or the glass of wine. You don't lay down your rights for a legalist. You lay down your rights for a weaker brother. You must distinguish between the sincerely weak and the Pharisees who want to put our freedom under their control. This requires wisdom. May God grant it, and may the Holy Spirit teach you. Pharisees will not bind our consciences and restrict our freedoms. Christ gave us these freedoms, and a legalist will not take them away. Sinclair Ferguson pipes, This text does not mean that you must become a slave to another's conscience. 
We lay our freedoms down for brothers. We will not conform to unscriptural commands of Pharisees. This is the nature of Christian liberty and its limits. The final takeaway, takeaway five. You think you are the strong brother, but maybe you are the licentious brother. You think you are the strong brother, but maybe you are the licentious brother. Oh, Kyle, I just enjoy my freedom in Christ. Maybe you're calling freedom what Scripture calls sin. And you're taking this whole thing to antinomian levels. You are cavalier in your behavior. You are bringing a reproach on the gospel. A true believer doesn't rejoice in sin. He grieves over it. Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavichin, was in the Presbyterian circles for a while. Many of you, I'm sure, have read some of his books. He was licentious. He preached a licentious gospel. It blew my mind. People couldn't catch it. He preached a licentious gospel, and it took a while for his life to bear that teaching out, but it eventually did. Christian liberty must never be flaunted. You must never make someone desire to resort to their pre-Christian lifestyle. I've got more. But that's a lot for you to eat. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be clear on who we are in the text and on what we need to do with the text. Great shepherd, please bring your people to maturity and use this text as one of the stepping stones to do it. This is our plea. Amen.